I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Live from Eggplant Studios in downtown Toronto, this is Jim Rats and Joints with Javon Shepard, Andy Routens, and Dan Gladman. For producer Dan Wong and myself, Jeff Cole, let's rack it up, Danny G. Tuesday, April the 6th, the day after the night before, and there was a NCAA championship game, and I, I don't think it's going to be remembered as one of the all-time classics. Dan Gladman here, Andy Routens, Javon Shepard, and uh, Amy Audibert with us today. I uh, love talking basketball with my best buds all the time. But unfortunately for me, we we start on a kind of a, a down note because the, the Gonzaga-Baylor game was not what it was billed to be. And I'm not just talking about yesterday and the day before. I mean, this, this was the matchup all year that everybody was waiting for. Um, Baylor runs away with it. They win 86-70. They win their first championship. And I, I thought the game was over at nine at nine zero. I really did. Um, Shep, where where do you go? How do you how do you describe this game? And and really, what the hell happened? Baylor wanted this matchup, man. These guys came out aggressive. They came out, you know, they were just hungry dogs, and they had Gonzaga on their heels right from the get-go. I think, you know, where for Baylor's concerned, they look at this thing like we're tired of hearing. You know about Gonzaga's undefeated season. We're tired of hear, hearing about Jalen Suggs. We're just tired about everything. And they, you could tell that these guys came out with a chip on their shoulder, and they just ran with it. I think you know when you're at a point when you're you're playing on that platform, that stage, a championship game, it's no longer about you know the scouting report. It's no longer about what you did in the regular season. It's no. No, no longer about the coaching. Um, it's just who wants it more. And these guys went out and they showed it. There was nothing tactical about what they did. They just went out and they they played tougher. They thugged them. Andy, is that is does it really boil down to that? Is it just a matter of them wanting it more? I mean, to me, Baylor was just a far superior team in terms of talent. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it's kind of shocking because you always look at Mark Few as, as overprepared, and he kind of seemed overwhelmed and underprepared for a team that was just much more physical and much more aggressive. They didn't really have a response to it. The, the things that stood out to me was Baylor's 45% from three, 43% from three, and Gonzaga's 29%. They forced 14 turnovers, and they were out-rebounded 38-22. So, like, those are the key components to any winning basketball game is taking care of the ball, taking care of the glass, and, and how well you shoot it. And uh, the Bears just had their way. You know, even on defense, you know, they, they were able to get straight up. They were able to get, uh, you know, hard-hedged DHOs, uh, you know, they, they weren't giving up straight up isolated matchup drives to the rim. Gonzaga's defense was, was much more aggressive and, and physical in the games coming in. And they just got stood up by what they've been showing other teams the entire tournament. So, I mean, it's a plus 14 advantage for the Bears in the second unit, you know, in their, in their, in their bench play. So I think on all cylinders, they just fired better than Gonzaga and, and the weight of, of carrying that 31-0. and 0, You know, it just kind of hit them right in the face when they went down early. I think that's just it's too much pressure for them to to bounce back from at that point. Amy, are you like me? Are, are you surprised not so much by who won the game, but how easy they made it look? Yeah, so I'm going to say something that's probably going to get a lot of head shaking. I want to run Go it ahead. back. That's the game I want to I want to run it back. I think that if you play that game, number one, a second time, but also don't forget Gonzaga's coming off that that sub shot that just completely like, I, if I'm a coach, I don't want my Final Four game to end like that. As obviously as exciting and electric it was, you've got to play a national championship in another, what, day and a half. And, and yeah, like Baylor is that team that, I don't know why they have a chip on their shoulder because they are so good, right? Like, what do they have to prove? Like, everyone knows they're one of the best teams, but they certainly, hey, if that's what's going to, they're going to feed into that, why not? But um, was I surprised with how good Baylor looked against Gonzaga a little bit, right? Because Gonzaga, the talk of Gonzaga coming into this tournament was just how they were the complete package team. They were the best consistent offense and defensive team. And guess what? Baylor 
yesterday was maybe the most complete game you've seen in a while out of a team. Like I don't know how Baylor could have actually played better. They their guards are they are their guards I think are responsible for eighty three percent of their scoring. They did that last night. Was it Mark Vital? Like hello. I mean the first couple possessions that I gave, he was like a bowling ball in there. How many second chance opportunities do they get? Right? Like they set this tone. And then the other thing for Baylor for me, which I noticed like totally intangible, but they didn't celebrate the way they started. It was very businesslike. And then when you looked at the final five or six minutes of that game, where they probably could have went for a hundred, they controlled the clock. Like mm-hmm. that's discipline, right? Like that's like buying into the game plan, understanding the bigger picture and really waiting until the final buzzer went off. And so, I mean, Baylor has nothing like, I don't know what they could have done different or better. That was a fantastic hey, performance. That's a great point, Amy, because I think they expected to do what they did because yeah. for the COVID break and they accumulated a couple of losses, they seem they seem like they should have been the undefeated team heading into the yeah. final game. So I feel like I they agree. had that chip on their shoulders to where they felt like they weren't an underdog. They were there to win and they proved that. It, it's it's funny, amazing. I think if if they played a seven game series, I actually think Gonzaga would come out with this. Amy. I think that was to your point yeah. as well. Yeah, I want to see it one more time. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so at all. I, I know you don't. If it's a seven game series, John, I, I think Baylor wins in five. I think no. I think a lot of what Baylor did is played off of energy, and that's tough to repeat, you know, four games back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. So I think, you know, last night, and that's the nature, that's the beauty of March Madness, is it's do-or-die, one-game series, come out, who gets the first blow wins. So now if you give, if you've given Gonzaga some more time to prepare and adjust to, you know, the speed and the tempo of Gonzaga's guards and slow the game down, I think they're a better team tactically. Uh, they have more talent. But that's not the case, and you don't get that. But that whole game, for some reason, it, it doesn't even it doesn't even connect. But do you guys remember when Zebo, when Zach Randolph was, I can't remember who it was at free throw line. He was like, in my hood, bullies get bullied. That's <laughs> yeah. how I felt about this whole game, is that that's what Baylor was saying to Gonzaga throughout the whole match. And, and I would say this, like, if Jalen Suggs doesn't get two fouls in the first, what, like, three minutes of the game, like, who knows what happens? Because you guys know when you have to play like, and you have to actually, he had to go back in the first half, like, you're out of rhythm. You're playing a little bit different. Like, I, I don't know if the, I, I get it, Dan. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, after what Baylor did last night, like, how dare you sit here? How dare I sit here and say, I'd like to see it again? But I'd like to see it again. Like, I'm sorry. I know I'm, you know, like you guys, I'm, we just love the game. I'm, but um. <laughs> I'm really surprised with what you're saying. In fact, you guys are kind of reminding me of the, the, the Greg Gumbel, the Clark Kellogg analysis. I mean, even at halftime, it seemed like they were talking about Gonzaga. I, I think Baylor was a better team. You know, uh, Charles Barkley mentioned they, they must have a weight room at Baylor. Like th- those guys were just bigger, tougher, faster. Um, they, they got, uh, you know, this alludes to what you were saying, Shep. They wanted it more and they did get to every loose ball. But I, I thought they were making life hell for Gonzaga right off the opening tip. I think that would continue every time they, they would ever play again, r- run it back or not. Yeah, I mean, oh. they, they, they made Tisper oh. and Timmy look regular. You know, they were held to yeah, 12 totally. points, respectively. You know, all, they only got up 10 shots, combined, 10 for 19 combined. So, I mean, that's that's a testament to Baylor's defense. And to me, Jalen Suggs was really the only player who didn't look like he was struggling to keep up athletically or to find a bucket. I think, you know, he definitely showed, you know, why against one of the most defensively aggressive teams throughout the tournament that he's for real as, as a top three draft pick. And, we, we, you know, we'd be remiss to not shout out Andrew Nemar, who, uh, you know, that's our right. Canadian, who finished, the, who finished the game with 11 and 8 assists, so really Solid game and uh, representing Canada in the national. Aurora, Ontario. You know, Aurora, you know what? Baby. You know what? AR, I, I, I like what Jalen did, but I wanted a little more from him. I wanted him to. I know he could score the basketball. And he, yeah, he showed yeah. that. But when I look at it, was his, too little, too late. The stage that they're on, like I, I want to see that dog come up. Like I want to see him either play so great that he just cements himself as you know the guy, or you know he plays himself out. Because he's playing that hard and that much of a dog, but he. Well, what do you think? He still finished with twenty, didn't he? 20, 22, 22. I believe it was. And I Jeff, mean, don't you think he the national championship eight for fifteen? Don't you think he did that in the uh, the UCLA game, Shep? I mean, to me, it's that a different game. Now we're in a championship game. Okay. But you credit Baylor because they were all over him. Like his first his first foul was a charge. Like he was getting to the cup and someone just stepped in. Like you credit like they they took him. Baylor took him out of the game. And it wasn't one guy. It was like a collective effort. Like I, that had to be part of their game plan, right? And, it's like not let Suggs start rolling. And not only did they not not, not let him roll him, they put him right to the bench. 
with two quick fouls. So and it was like, that's, yeah. And then that's the beauty of this one game do or die. Because like you're saying, yeah. like a, that, you know, a series would give a great to come into his own and adjust. Like there's no adjustment time. This is a, this is a short turnaround, you know, two halves, figure it out. And, you know, if you can't do it then, then that's the game. But I just want to see him, I just want to be able to see him impact more. Um, and how heartbreaking. Just as, that's just a competitor. I just want to see a great. But in the NBA, he's going to have that adjustment time. I, I, do, you, do you think, do any of you think that his draft position change, changes? And even going back to the UCLA game, like to me, he's, he's at worst number three. I would take him number one. Um, but does anything change really for any of these players based on, you know, Kispert, probably a lottery pick. Um, Ayayi, probably in the first round. How about the Baylor players? Did, did they increase their stock by this one game? Like, I guess my question is, how many players on the floor in that championship game are going to be in the NBA next season? I think Mitchell increases his stock. <laughs> yeah, Mitchell. Yeah. I would say this. Can you imagine, though? So we've been talking about Ignite for how many months, Javon? Can you imagine yes. if you're Kuminga or you're Jalen Green sitting at home watching this because you're like, wait, I can do that too, but when your time is not right before the draft, right? Like, don't forget, like, this is on y'all GMs now to, like, yeah. <laughs> yep. really, right? This is where it gets tough for you because you've got to obviously put your head on and, like, really evaluate, not just on momentum. But, yeah, I so, think Davion Mitchell is special. I mean, <laughs> what he's going to get, what he's going to get, what's going to help him, in my opinion, too, or increase his stock is now you have, you've evaluated and you've got to tick off that box winner. Not every guy is going to have that ability or in his arsenal, in his package, right? Um, compete. Ability to, you know, impact his team and just that infectious person. Not, like, those things don't show up in the stat sheet, but the way he plays with that tenacity is infectious to everybody around him. That's what you want, on, you know, from a guy like that. And you, you never know. He could be your starting guard. He could be a guy coming off the bench. But at the end of the day, even if he doesn't score, he's impacting winning. And I think that's where you know, that helps his case in, in, in this scenario. With where, with regards to Jalen, I don't he's done what he's done. He's done what he needs to do. I don't think none of this helps or hurts him. In fact, if he had won this game or he was, you know, he had turned this game around, I think maybe that propels him to that number one spot. But does it hurt him? No. He's done what he's done. He has his body of work. Great stuff. You know, the championship game, I said it before, I don't think it's going to really be remembered that much in you know the annals of college basketball history in Waco Texas they will always celebrate this but to me the game that will stand out in this tournament despite some unbelievable upsets like uh Oral Roberts North Texas you know those were some great stories early in the tournament but the, the Gonzaga UCLA game um obviously is an instant classic maybe one of the best finishes uh, we've ever seen, but it was just a great game through and through. And and I I think the question that I have, and I hope we all can figure it out, is how UCLA elevated themselves from a team that was in the the play in round in the field of sixty eight, and by the end of the tournament, looks like at worst they're the third best team. And then there's some whispers in the basketball world that maybe they would have given Baylor more, you know, a tougher, a tougher game. So how, how, how will you remember that the Gonzaga UCLA game and where does, where does UCLA stand? I mean, how did they become the third best team in the country? I would say they were the best team at controlling the pace, like every single game. That's what they did. They, they made it their game and the Gonzaga game, like they mucked it up. They got that game right where they wanted by controlling the pace. I would say Mick Cronin, uh, their head coach is phenomenal. And the other thing to add to the layer, Dan, of what you're saying is, I mean, when, don't forget, like California was one of the worst places that got hit by COVID. So he didn't actually see his team from when they shut down last year until I think opening practice. So, I mean, basically didn't have an off season either, which is incredible to see what they were able to do. But I mean, uh, yeah, I think they just, they controlled the pace. Everyone that was in front of them, they said, we're going to do it our way. And to add to that, I think, you know, with this UCLA team, you're looking at a, a, a club, a school that has a history of winning 11 NCAA national championships. The players that go to this team or, or are recruited to this school, 
aren't just fly by night guys. Like these are talented guys at the end of the day, whether it's your, your number one player uh, in your starting five or your 12th man off of your bench. I think so these guys got themselves in a situation where they could add to that history. That counts for something. And they were just building on that. So to see them make this run, um, is it surprising just based on the injuries and the, and the type of season they've had? If you're looking at, if you're looking at the, 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 their season on whole, yes. But if you're looking at the school, um, you know, what Cronin bring, brings to the table and just the culture around this team, not necessarily. Andy, I'd, I'd love to go to you on this because I, I, I think we have to bring Syracuse into the conversation here as well. They were an 11 seed. Um, they get to the Sweet 16. And I feel like I've, I've seen this before and there were even some graphics during the tournament, and you, you go back in the history and you realize that some of the great Syracuse runs were as a lower speed. You know, you don't see it a lot, but you see it sometimes. And I don't know, like, what what is it that a team that maybe has struggled throughout the season, all of a sudden you get to the tournament and they catch fire? I, I'd love to hear you guys, all three of you played college basketball. What is it? about a team you struggle all year and all of a sudden you get hot at the right time. How does that happen? I, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, UCLA and Syracuse respectively weren't great regular season teams. I mean, UCLA finished fourth in the Pac-12 with you know 22 and 10 record and, and Syracuse finished eighth in the ACC at 18 and 10. So they were both lucky to sneak in the tournament, to be honest with you. And, and I don't think that we can really harp too much on if UCLA was to win the champion or get to the championship game, what they would have done. I think they were just lucky to be there. I think it's a combination of playing without pressure because as an 11 seed, you have no expectations. You're just a bracket buster at that point. Uh, and it's essentially a new season. I mean, you, you go throughout the season, you have tumultuous times, you have ups and downs. And then it's like, it's like putting on a fresh pair of clothes. You know, it's, it's like you have this new day ahead of you and, and you feel fresh, you feel revitalized. You're in a, a, new, in a new setting, you're, you're out of your, your city. You have fan support. So it feels like an entirely new season. And, uh, and like I said, when you're a team that plays with nothing to lose, you're really dangerous. I think that's when teams are at their best is when they don't have expectations or uh, uh, you know, you know, pressure on their shoulders. Like I feel for Gonzaga coming in as, as you know, 31 and 0, you know, as a number one seed, you know, having been a number one seed at Syracuse, I know what that expectation is like, and it's it's difficult to carry with you, especially the later you go. It just adds. So, uh, so I, I think that's a testament to to both those teams and how far they got and what they accomplished this year. They obviously are, you know, both have great coaching, but I think it is a testament to uh, that, that feeling of a new season. Teams. To add to that as well, teams hit their stride at different points in the season for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're when you're talking about the NCAA, you know, often we often leave out the fact that some of these, you know, more touted schools or highly touted schools, historic schools have a lot of you know five star recruits, McDonald's All Americans that are one and done. Um, whereas you have some of these mid majors and other schools that you know may have a couple seniors. And that counts for something, you know, having juniors and seniors on your team because you get that experience, you get that grit, you get that toughness, and you get guys that understand that basketball may end for them tomorrow. You know, they may not have a, a professional career after, so they live in that moment, and it means a lot more to them than some of these younger guys that, you know, one, they have, you know, three more years of eligibility ahead of them, and two, could be leaving, you know, leaving school early to go into the professional ranks. So, you know, there's... There's so many variables that count, that play into, you know, why teams hit their stride at different points in the year. Uh, and it, it really just comes down to will and chemistry at the end of the day. So these guys are all talented guys. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle as well, uh, despite it could be, you know, a lower a lower division school, mid-major, high major. Right now, there's there's less of a gap between those high majors and low major schools. Yeah, and I would just jump in and I'm going to put a curveball, which is probably another conversation for another so- show, but we have to re reevaluate how we're seeding teams. I think it's getting really political. I think ADs are there and, you know, conferences, and um, we're seeing these upsets, but it's not really like, you don't dog the higher seed because I don't think some of these higher seeds should be. Uh, the other thing I'll add to it is the NCAA tournament, in my opinion, in a couple years down the road, is going to have a completely different vibe with this transfer portal. You're not going to have guys that are playing for the team that they've rep for three or four seasons. You're not going to see the loyalty. You're not going to see that intangible, like just lay it out for your school. 
the transfer portal and I understand, I, I guess I under, I understand it. I don't like it. And I think something that's going to be dearly affected is the NCAA tournament. And I think it's going to, yeah, like seedings, like Devon said, you're going to see mid-majors that all of a sudden are, oh, like they're really good. Yeah, because a kid just sat on the bench in a high major and didn't want to do that anymore, right? And instead of waiting another year or trying to grind it out, he just goes. Like, that's going to be interesting, something to think about. I'll say that. And to your point, uh, Mitchell, uh, Davion Mitchell, he, where did he leave? He had left. Don't, I don't want to be misquoted right now, but he he's a transfer guy as well. Yeah. I mean, the port, I mean, at least on the women's side, I think Syracuse women, 10 players have entered the portal. I think that's what it was like. Like, it, it is now like open season. It is going to change the face of the college game. The poaching is real. Like, it's going to be insane. And I, again, I guess this is a whole other show because we could talk about this for hours. And I'd like to do a little bit more research. But, um, you know, I would say this about the transferring stuff. Norm Powell interviewed on Sirius XM after he got traded. And I was driving up the QEW to Toronto. And I swear I almost just pulled over to listen to it because I didn't want to, like, traffic was crazy. Because they asked him why he was able to kind of like continue to, to get through his career and grind through his career and just, you know, get there. And he said it was because he played four years in college. He said that made, I thought it was out of all the things Norm could have said, he goes back to grinding it out, playing four years in college and how that prepared him. And he didn't play right away and he had to play behind some good players. And I just, I wish everyone could hear that. Not because I'm saying it's the right decision for everybody, but I think there is some integrity in at least listening to that type of conversation. Sorry, Dan, we're way off path now. <laughs> no, well, you're, you're giving us some great information. And, you know, yeah, Norm Powell, four years at UCLA, you know, you, you gain some tools and expertise that prepare you professionally. Not everyone is ready uh, to be a professional after one or two years. You know, so, sometimes it takes time. You know, what, one, one thing I, I do want to ask Shep and Andy you know, there wasn't a tournament last year. You guys both played between Syracuse and Michigan. You played in the tournament. You played professionally. And I, I really think this would have been the first time you had a chance um, to maybe look at it as a, an observer, maybe as a casual observer. I don't know. But, you know, what, what was it like for you after all these years having been removed from the tournament to now kind of take that step back? Like, does it... Did it remind you of your days in the tournament? Did, did you see anything as an observer that maybe you, you might not have noticed when you were a player? I think now when I, you know, we look at it from two lens, and I'm sure Amy can appreciate this as well. On one side, studying the broadcasters and how they deliver, right? That's, that's you know, an art in itself. So it forces you to look at the game from another lens. Um, and I, I realize now I, I don't watch, I don't follow the actual ball. I'm watching everything off the ball. I'm listening to the broadcasters from, from that aspect. Now, from, you know, being in the, the evaluating talent for our team in Ottawa, uh, you're also looking at the game from, you know, just, just an evaluation standpoint and how to really, you know, see, you know, identify certain talent guys, guys that have talent and, you know, a certain prototype of player, uh, guys that could be on your squad as well. So I think, you know, we're, we're so far removed from our immediate days of, you know, playing at Syracuse, playing at Michigan, that, you know, we've grown as basketball people and looking at the, looking at the game and March Madness from a whole different lens, um, which makes you appreciate the game completely different at this point as well. So it, it's fun. Um, and Amy, I'm sure you can attest to this too, just being somebody that played, you know, collegiate basketball now, looking at it it's, it's a completely different game and then the player in you the competitor in you also says damn shit i could have took advantage of that situation i was in a little more i would have done this differently or this game is actually pretty easy when you look at it oh yeah yeah and i would say this when i played the tournament we were five we got the five twelve upset at lsu so i'll never live that one down i always pick the 12 <laughs> there's always at least one how about you, AR? Uh, I mean, you're, you're many years from your days playing in Syracuse in the tournament. You mentioned it before. You were the number one seed at one point, so you understand that pressure. What was it like for you maybe to have a closer look at the tournament than you've had in, in the years since? Yeah, I feel like I'm getting deja vu talking about this. Uh, you know, it feels like that the NCAA was just a, a 
you know, primarily pushing pushing the pace just to get this tournament underway, get, you know, under the guise of you know, COVID um, and, and the amount of you know monetary value that it brings. It, it to me felt felt a little bit forced given the times, um, you know, and especially when you look at the disparity between the NCAA men and the NCAA women, um, and, you know, in the makeshift weight rooms and, and or the lack thereof. It just seemed very rushed. Um, obviously, we know the NCAA is, is a huge monetized business. Um, but as far as the basketball play goes, I think having been removed from college basketball for so long and having played in the NBA and, and over in Europe, you know, the game has just played so much differently and with more pace and with more patience. Um, you know, to me, the college guys, you know, with the 35 second shot clock, it's a little bit more helter skelter. You know, guys are just kind of flying towards the ball, they're ball watching, you know, there's not much spacing. You know, and to, and to me, you know, the NCAA, the men, it, it is just primarily the, the best athletes and the best scorers, you know, you know, like falling under the guise of, of playing for your university, as opposed to the NCAA women who kind of play the game in, in a more correct manner. They play, as we alluded to last episode, they play more like Europeans, where they play more structured. They use the fundamentals of the game. And you can see it. It's beautiful basketball. And, and at times, the NCAA men kind of look more helter-skelter. They kind of look lost. Uh, and it's really a testament to how Baylor came out and played as the aggressors. If you come out and you play hard and you play aggressive, good things are going to happen regardless of, you know, the game plan. Well, well said. And, and I, I like that you're kind of leading us into some conversation, Andy, about the women's tournament. And I don't know if, if uh, this year there was just more of the women's tournament available on on cable TV in Canada or I just had more time on my hands but I did find myself watching more of the women's tournament than, than I have before. And I was very impressed by the play um, and by the, by the athletes themselves. I mean, Paige Becker's in, incredible, uh, Ari McDonald, incredible. And it's, it's great to see uh, at least in my eyes, that the, with a women's tournament getting some of its due. And I, I think those games, especially when you get to the final four would be sold out in, in normal circumstances um, I guess, Amy, and I want to start with you on it. Did the best team win? W- is Stanford the best team in, in, in the women's game? Because, I, you know, there was UConn, Baylor might have got ripped off. Um, who, who is the best team and, and did the best team win? Yeah, so I wanted Stanford to win the game because I did feel that they were the best team all around, um, just on what on both sides of the ball. And they actually didn't play their best game, and that was to Arizona, who, who left like – UCLA, we've talked about, just completely mucked it up, and that's how they beat UConn. They said, we're going to play it at our pace. Um, so I appreciated the close uh, national championship game. But uh, I would say this, Dan, you know, I did a podcast last week with a former head coach at Duke and at Michigan State, um, Coach P. McCauley, and we both were laughing. We were both kind of guests on it because we know our product. Like, the women's basketball community knows the product. We know it's good basketball. It's been better tournaments for a long time, I'd say. But the visibility has been the issue. And so, you know, the fact that, yes, you can turn on the TV in Canada and watch a lot of the women's tournament this year was a big step forward. We know our product's good. Um, so, yes, the best team won. I'm getting back on my soapbox again. Uh, I, I enjoyed the tournament. I do think Baylor got ripped off. And I do think if it was a Baylor-Sanford final, things could have been a little bit different. But I know the Husky fans out there are shaking their heads. They're going to be incredible because they're like basically returning most of their players. So, I mean, they're going to be fantastic and they're going to be pissed because Gino's going to make sure that they stay pissed all summer long. Um, To piggyback on what you're saying, you know, with the the visibility, I went to ESPN.com to look up stats and there's no visible links for each player. Why? Listen, can I? How? I don't. I don't, don't want to like. Well, what, what really kills me is even like the score at Canadian Network. You can go find all of Andrew Nembhard's stat lines. You can't find anything on Aaliyah Edwards. Right. Exactly. That that, that was like two weeks ago. So, mm-hmm. but I, when I say visibility, Andy, those that we don't even be, like we didn't even have the games on TV in Canada until it got to I think the Final Four and Championship. So I think that's right. the step forward. The other step forward is you know you have LeBron James, you have Fran Frischella, you have Drake, like all like engaged into the tournament. And I mean, if that's what it takes, because Draymond, hello, like that was incredible. That like thread he put out, like, are you kidding me? Um, but if it helps to get, you know, people like that on those platforms talking about it, like if that's what we need to keep moving forward, it is, but our product is, has been good for a long time. 
I mean, it, it's been a great NCAA tournament for a long time on the women's side. So it's kind of nice that people are starting to pay attention. It's nice, too, that the same team isn't winning all the time now, right? I mean, it, UConn, it was Tennessee and UConn for at least 10 years. So it, it is nice to see the field kind of opening up. Yeah, it is. But my thing, I would say this, though, Dan, is like, and, and tell it, like, if you love, if you really love basketball, like, if you actually, there are a lot of people out there who like to say that they love the game of basketball. If UConn's rolling everyone, you should still turn it on at some point because it's a beautiful, they're playing, like, they're so good. Like, how can we not, like, I just think that was such an excuse to, like, knock on the game when UConn was rolling everyone for years. Like, at least turn it on for, for half an hour and watch the best college team, like one of the biggest dynasties on either side that you'll ever see roll, right? Like, I, I get what you're saying, and I agree with you. I think the parody is definitely helping, and you are seeing, like, in Caitlin Park at Iowa, like a phenomenal freshman herself, um, who went head-to-head with Paige. Was it in the, uh, would it have been the Elite Eight? I don't, I don't, or Sweet Sixteen. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, because I could rant forever on this one. <laughs> is the transfer portal the same in, in NCAA men's as it, as, it, as it is in NCAA women's? They've completely opened it. So, like I okay. said, everyone gets a year. And it, what's interesting, on the women's side, uh, 52 players, and that doesn't include the, national, the two national championship teams, have already declared for the WNBA draft, which is on April 15th. There's mm-hmm. 36 spots, and usually that third round doesn't make a roster. And there's not really – I don't even think there's 24 open spots. There's 144 spots. So it's interesting that it's all connected, right? Mm-hmm. We, we've got to find a way to, like, better help and support our student-athletes on both sides. But I'm hoping that there is some conversation driven towards the women's side because of situations like we're seeing now. Amy, this is this is a perfect question for you as well. It's, it's <laughs> in the show. Uh, <laughs> Because um, Megan and I were speaking about this a couple of weeks ago, and it's funny you bring it up that these women on the NCAA side, they, they play the tournament, and there's a quick turnaround to the draft, right? Where ten days. Ten days. And they're off to their, their teams. Whereas the men, on the men's side, there's a little more, there's a little more time. Um, how do you think that affects, do you think that's a, a pro or a con on the women's side um, for the, you know, short, such a quick turnaround. I'm indifferent. There's, there's both there's two sides to this. I want to hear. Yeah. Cause you played it. You, you, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'd like to maybe see a little bit more time. The issue is the W season, right? Starts late May Tra- training camps open early May. And so that's the whole issue with seniors that are really good on the women's side. They go right to the WNBA, which often turns right into a, a season overseas. There's like no downtime. There's like literally like two, maybe a week or two off here and there. So, I mean, I, but I get what you're saying because of the momentum, but, and you guys know this, you've been in this position. What about the mental, like the mental, like of just kind of taking a deep breath where you can get better, where you want to fit in, signing an agent, like all these things are like, they're the part of the business, right? And they have zero time to basically get ready for this. So I think where the athletes are concerned, those women are concerned, they're at a disadvantage for exactly what you're saying there. There's no downtime. There's no time to, you know, decompress and recalibrate. Um, you know, that agent process is grueling. A lot. Of, I'm sure you guys have all, all gone through it as well. But I think where the, the professional teams are concerned, teams in, across Europe, teams across the WNBA, they actually do a more thorough job evaluating the talent because they use the course of the season um, to really – really go through this and really, you know, go through their process, do their, their character checks um, and see, you know, really identify the players. Half of the NBA GMs don't know who these kids are until later in the season. It's, so it's, it's, it's one of those things where they use the term and then use the, use the names um, in the NBA season, whereas w, the WNBA and the, on the NCAA women's side, I think it's it's a lot more thorough and a lot well, more. Well, is there is there a pre-draft process for NCAA women? Is there a common? I mean, there's ten. No, there's like literally the draft is April fifteenth. Our the season just finished gotcha. yesterday. So yeah, so like it's say, crazy. I would say there's, there's yeah. no downtime for either either. No, because uh, no, an NCAA, and I mean, yeah. oh, I was just saying as as an, as an NCAA athlete as a, on the men's side, you go right into training for pre-draft. So there's no downtime either way. So that's a wash in my opinion. Yeah. But the main advantage that NCAA men athletes have 
is the fact that you get to go to a designated location and train right away with professionals. Yeah. So you understand what you're heading into. You get a little bit of experience in playing with guys who are at the professional level already. You kind of have a wherewithal of how to represent yourself, you know, how, how to go into interviews prepared, how to, how to talk to GMs. So they have a plethora of, of advantages uh, that really view them heading into the NBA draft as opposed to the women who seem like they only have a finite amount of time to just essentially get ready for the draft. So and I would just disparity in my opinion. But. And I would just add when you look at this team, and I know this year's obviously been a, a special year, but Stanford, who won the whole thing, they spent 63 days on the road in the middle of the season because they couldn't play at home. They didn't know how long they were going to be on the road. They were told to pack your bags. We can't play at home because the state had shut down or the restrictions. They ended up being on the road for 63 days in the no, middle of their season. Yeah, right. So then they, it, well, it's an incredible story. So then they get, they finally, they get home and then they go on to win a national championship. And by the way, if you get drafted, like, like it's just crazy when you think about um, this year in particular. I don't know. It, it'd be, I, I have, again, a whole nother off topic, but I mean, well, we, we, it, if it, you really it, care it, about the student athletes, you'd be helping them right here, now. I, I well, think we're. I think we know the next podcast that we're starting, and it's it's NCAA chat with Amy Otterberg. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting educated here. You know, Amy, and and well, we're going to talk a bit of NBA in a little bit. I I do want to um raise uh, a historical broadcast that that you were involved in. Um, you were part of the all female Raptors on TSN show, which. I know that everybody here, Andy, Shep, myself, our producer, Dan Wong, we all applauded, thought it was uh, terrific. Um, it wasn't publicized as much, but you've also been uh, the radio analyst on uh, the Raptors games on TSN, working alongside uh, Paul Jones, another great friend of this show. Um, I would just love to hear you, um, before we go to break, talk about your experience with it and the direction that you see basketball and sports broadcasting going at least in Canada? Yeah, well, that's a tough question, right? Like in, in my possession, my position, the only thing that's kind of kept me in the game is just waking up and trying to go to work every day or figuring out a, out a way to secure some kind of work. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like you get into grind because this morning I woke up with a lot of laundry to do. And that's one of the first thing that, um, but so that's no, always a good time. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, obviously, the 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 all female game was incredible. I was proud of what we were able to do. Um, there was two sides of it, right? It was two weeks of interviews of uh, like inspiring young women, which was super important. But then there was also just this like, I just want to go like show I can do a job, you know, like I can do this job. And and so when it was when it was over, it was kind of just like in some ways a little bit of a relief. Like I was proud of it, and and all right, like let's go, let's keep moving forward, let's get that footage for my reel because I need to go get a job. Um, but I mean, just like on a personal level, obviously um, for me, just being able to do different skill sets has always been important. I wasn't a big I wasn't a big name, and I certainly wasn't a big NBA player. So how does Amy call NBA jobs? And it's just being able to do a lot of different things. And so when I looked at a 15-day span, I called the television game for the G League, I did the radio game for the Raptors, and I did the studio analyst for the Raptors. And so that was important to me, just to be able to sit in these different kind of chairs and have these different skill sets. And, like, I hope that's what young women see, is just, like, being able to not pigeonhole yourself into one role and just keep working. I mean, listen, you can I can be an accountant and hate what I do and still get fired. Like that's from Jim Carrey. Like Jim Carrey made this graduation speech a couple of years ago and it like shook me because he was like basically talking about how you could do something you hate and it, you still get fired. So why don't you just try to do something you kind of like? You just never know, right? So that's kind of something I'm holding on to right now. I don't know if that answered your question, but it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Yeah, I didn't I didn't think when, when that question came up that someone would be quoting Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, yeah. but hey. That that's great. Unless I have the wrong Jim Carrey. No, no, that's him. That's him. Yeah. Hey, that's okay. him. <laughs> okay, amazing. Well, why don't we uh, go ahead, Ar? Yeah. No, I was just gonna say. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you are where you are for a reason. I don't think you should try to downplay your resume you know, whatsoever. You're very talented at what you do, and that's why you were able to do and be in that position. So. I just wanted to know, like, your John Wiggins, the, the Raptors Vice President, Organizational Diversity Inclusion, came out and said that 
uh, you know, the goal for the game was, was, was for the for the show for the women across the country that are working in sports, sports journalism, sports broadcasting, are viable and achievable career paths. So, I mean, I just wanted to know, you know, after you got through with the game, what your general feeling was, you know, how much you enjoyed it, and, and really what the feedback was like for you from that audience specifically. Yeah, so I would say this, like, that was the first call I made to John Wiggins, because with like, he just said, we want, we just want to do this to, and, and they wouldn't have done it if they didn't feel that it was going to be a good show. This was delicate, right? Like, we didn't just want to go pick five women and right. put them on TV and say, hey, we did a good job. Exactly. They had to make sure they could find five women that they could put in these roles that could execute and put on a show because our Toronto Raptors broadcasters are great. And you know that, Andy, like, yes. like, it was like, we were just, I, I, we I didn't, concur, yes. yeah, like, so it wasn't like, well, we just want to like get through it. Like we wanted to, the, the bars up here and it was just one game, but it was one big game. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. what I was, what, what I take from it the most was walking. I had never worked in the studio before, so I was definitely anxious, right? Like I've never been in a studio before. Um, Kate Burness yeah. and Kayla Gray were amazing. And like, I didn't feel like as anxious as I thought because of how awesome they are. And I think that um, women supporting women, it doesn't always happen in our industry. It might look like it, but it isn't. I'll tell you that. And so to actually um, feel supported, like, and, and even afterwards, just like conversations with them was truly amazing. And I wasn't expecting that, not just not a cut against them. But again, like when you're a woman navigating a male dominated industry, sometimes other women aren't so friendly. They are on their phones, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, um, but, uh, so like judges genu genuinely, those connections were super awesome to me and they're motivating to move forward. Like, I don't know where my next job's going to be. I'm willing to pack up and move anywhere. Like that's just been important to me to be able to do that. But, um, definitely a sense of community and a platform in which I feel like we did a good job and then it's move on. It's not like sit at home and twiddle my fingers and wait, wait for someone to tell me like I did great. Like I don't. I, I know it was a good show, so now it's just move on, if that kind of makes sense, right? Like, it's on to the next. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. It's great to hear how positive an experience it was for you. And, uh, you know, it's a sign of the times and a, a positive direction uh, where the industry is going. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and get back and talk some NBA. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So one thing that dropped on my phone minutes before the NCAA championship game started on the Monday night was some news about Paul Pierce. I, I still am not sure I understand what happened, but I know that he lost his job as pretty much the main studio analyst on uh, NBA on ABC, NBA on ESPN. Can somebody explain to me what what triggered this and what happened? Did, did was the right move made by ESPN and Disney and where you know where does the broad where does their broadcast go from here? What what the hell happened? Someone tell me. Well, well, in light of Amy's on to the next, it won't be on to the next for Paul because they ESPN <laughs> just kicked him out. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it's just stupidity and ignorance, man. You have. You know, a guy like that, and it's sensitive to me because I think, especially in the times that we're in, you have to, you know, all broadcasters, people in media have to use their platform um, and send the right message uh, and not abuse uh, what they have, you know, the, the platform and the space that they have. I think, you know, you have Paul Pierce, who's obviously been, you know, the public figure, you're on there, and he's, I don't know, he's high, he's drunk, he's stripper party, just turning all the way up. So I'm still trying to figure out who Monica is. He's calling for Monica. I wonder who she is, but uh, yeah, it was just, it was a bit too much for uh, one, who he is, uh, the leverage that he has, the, 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 the platform that he has. And I think it was disappointing to see, 
one for my, you know somebody like myself um, entering broadcasting, but it also makes me think, you know, with that that level of immaturity, who was Paul Pierce in in his locker room, in the locker room for younger guys, right? Because if you're at this age in your career, this stage mm-hmm. in your career, um, and still see this as okay, you know, what type of guidance could you have given to younger guys uh, in locker room? So that that's just my, I'm, I'm all over the place with it. But it is a little disappointing. But and then you know his response to it was even worse because he, he went on Instagram and was saying or something you know, posted somewhere like, you know, haters gonna hate. You know, my shout out to my you know people that still love me or whatever the case. I'm gonna be all right. Shit, it's not about that, Paul. We know you're a millionaire. You're a multimillionaire. It's okay. <laughs> but the message you sent and you you supported it with that. You backed it up with that response. There, it wasn't the best. Yeah, I mean, like, I would be, if I was upset, I'd be mad at, like, his friends who didn't tell him to put his phone away, right? It's funny because we we talk about athletes, um, we talk about athletes, and especially, like, when they're going from that high school or college to professional, don't hire your, your uncle as your financial advisor and make sure you're keeping the best people around you. Like, I guess that kind of has to go through your entire life when you have status like that, because, listen, like, I'm not gonna... We've all been we've all been in places where we're having a good time, right? And and like we make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna sit here and pretend I haven't been there a million times, right? I'm not Paul Pierce, but I've made some some decisions and I'm like, because then when you're in the moment, you're like, This is a good idea. This is fun, right? I mean I so I I I feel like I understand I totally I agree with you, Javon. Like when you are a public figure, when you have a voice and yes, like you have to you, you, there are certain standards that you think that you'd have to meet. I do feel, I feel for him though, because clearly he, there was some intoxication. I don't know exactly what I was like looking at him like, dang, I, part of me wishes I was at the party. Okay. Like I'm not going to lie and say <laughs> that he was having a good time. And and then there's the whole thing, right? Where our things are different now because this is now with your phone, like you can give people your personal life in a second right? Like that wasn't necessarily there a couple of years ago, but now it's like, oh, you can press live and the, you know, what was it? 300 people can tune in and I'm done. So I, I do feel bad. Do I think he's done? No, I think we'll see Paul Pierce again, because you know what? The world loves more than anything else in the, in the world of sports, redemption. Everyone loves a redemption story. So Paul Pierce in some ways had a great party, hidden a little speed bump, and I think we'll see him again. Well, if Amy oh, wanted, if Amy wanted to be at that party, I don't feel bad about that. I wanted to be at that party too. So maybe we'll get invited to. Ar, you wanna, you wanna, chime in? No, I think we've beaten the topic to death. Yeah, though. okay. I think that okay, it's good. just you have to know, you have to know your platform, you have to know your followers, and, and you know, you see guys like Shannon Sharp with the, you know, the the, uh, the black and milds and 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 the and the, uh, the any, but he does it in the capacity where he's not under the influence live. You know, and, and and there's obviously certain situations where where that's acceptable and when it isn't. And and to me, like Amy said, it's kind of like who you're keeping in your inner circle that really allows that to be okay. You know, because there's no way that you would make a regular post about that, review it, and then say this is a good idea. So, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate, and I don't think that we'll see the last of Paul either by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, yeah, you definitely got to uh, reconsider who's in his inner circle. Well, for sure. And uh, Paul Pierce, adios. Uh, guys, it's time for hashtag TDITRH, this date in Toronto Raptors history. I know I was there. April 7, 2002, Alvin Williams scores 26 points on 11 of 16 shooting. The Raptors beat the Indiana Pacers 94-84 at home. It's Toronto's eighth straight win. Gets them to 500 for the first time in six weeks and right into the playoff hunt down the stretch of the season. Antonio Davis adds 21 and 10, and Keon Clark scores 15 off the bench. Reggie Miller scores 26 for the Pacers. You know that Reggie Miller from those uh, hilarious Wendy's commercials? Uh, He scores 26, 6 of 7 from behind the three-point line. The Raptors end up winning nine in a row and make the playoffs for the third straight season. This has been this date in Toronto Raptors history. I know I was there. Check it out on Twitter at hashtag TDITRH and also check out our social media at Jim Rats Podcast. 
We haven't really talked much about the NBA, at least on the court stuff. Um, a couple of things that I think stand out from, from recent games. Let's look at Monday night. You know, usually the NBA does not play on the night of the NCAA championship game, but with, with everything going on in the world with COVID and the condensed schedule, um, I guess they had to uh, utilize it. Um, one game really standing out for me was uh, New York at Brooklyn. Harden played, only got through a few minutes before the, the hamstring tightened up again. Kyrie Irving t- takes over, scores 40, and the Nets win 114-112. But it's pretty cool to see a battle of New York be at such a competitive level. And it, it's it's I think it's great to see New York being restored. I guess the question that we're really starting to see with the Nets now, we're going down the stretch. Durant hasn't played in a while. Kyrie leaves the team now and then. Harden's injured right now. Is there any time for them to actually build some chemistry and get to the point where they really will compete for the championship? I don't even know if they need chemistry. They're so talented. Like, look how many guys you said have have fallen out. You have KD, James, um, Kyrie. His is never injuries, but he always has some off-course stuff. Um, But I think if you have any combination of those guys with Joe Harris on the floor, uh, you're fine because he's always going to stretch the floor. Those guys are all superstars that have led teams. Uh, anyway, uh, I think if you're coming down the stretch, you definitely want to to have them together, and, and hopefully, you know, they're all experienced enough, um, and hopefully, they have enough respect for Nash that they all hit that stride like we were talking about earlier on, uh, later down, later down, because you're not going to get. And, and the reality is, it's inevitable. A lot of teams are dealing with injuries. A lot of teams are going to have you know health and safety protocols going on this year, and it, it may not end. So. It's the nature of the beast for this year. Uh, it just has to be the, the team that hits the stride. It gets the most chemistry down the stretch. What I was actually excited about, and I'm, I'm sure Amy can attest to this too, is just seeing Alizé Johnson, man. Like he was a guy and how he's been productive with 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 Brooklyn. Um, I even had another another NBA coach and, and kind of chuckle at me, called me last night, kind of chuckled because I had mentioned him while we're calling the, bro- the 905 broadcast. And, and, you know, he kind of said, no, I don't see him having – much of a future because he's a little wild, he called to apologize. Um, and, you know, he's a guy who's going out and doing the same things that we've seen him do in the, with the Raptors development team, uh, just rebounding, uh, getting onto the open court, you know, making plays, which you probably wouldn't assume, you know, that of a guy coming from G League to the Brooklyn Nets of all teams that's, that's star-studded. So I'm just excited about, about him there. And, and obviously, you know, how the Knicks are playing, we, we probably didn't expect this from them, um, given that, you know, a young team, not the most talented team, but Tibbs has them playing tough. And that, that's just the beginning of both of his team. I would just add with Brooklyn. Um, um, oh, <laughs> go ahead. No, you go, Andy. You go. <laughs> Let's go, Andy. You're our guest. No. All right, I'll go with the guest first, and then Andy closes it up. Okay, I, I'm going to be quick. What I'm going to say with Brooklyn is this. Anything short of a championship is a failed season for them. Like, you look at who they went and acquired. You look at who they built. And, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, it was a close game last night, Dan. But I think they're firing on all cylinders. Um, Brooklyn has one thing. They've got one job to do. Because, like, you look at who didn't play last night. And that was almost a starting lineup on another team. On any other team. It's like, they're just, they're, okay, go ahead. Go ahead, AR. <laughs> No, no, no. They, they, exactly that. I mean, they're they're competitive, but are they really? I mean, they're 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 in the A spot at twenty five and twenty six. But right now, after beating Detroit, you know, Reggie Bull comes out and says we have a big five, and then Julius Randle says we have a big fifteen. You got a big fifteen that lost to Kyrie Irving, <laughs> so <laughs> what are we really talking about here? So at the end of the day, I think that they're getting better. They're doing the right things, you know, in terms of bringing in Tibbs and you have vets in the locker room like D Rose and, and RJ's coming into his own, but they're not anywhere near the vicinity of being competitive with Brooklyn, especially in a, in a seven game series. Uh, no, no doubt about it. And I think for the Knicks, if they make the playoffs this year, that will have to be considered a huge achievement, especially if they can finish in the top six and don't even have to deal with, uh, with the play in rounds. Um, but they'll definitely be wanting to avoid the Brooklyn Nets in the first round of the NBA playoffs. I think everyone is because if the Nets are even close to healthy, that first round is a sweep. 
Um, one one team that used to be a super team and now they're really struggling is is the Golden State Warriors. I believe that they've dropped seven of their last eight. Uh, obviously, they have a, a, a slate of injury problems as well. You know, Clay Thompson isn't playing at all this year. Draymond Green in and out of the lineup. Steph Curry in and out of the lineup. Andrew Wiggins, Kelly Oubre Jr. Really probably not performing at the level that people at least hoped, if not expected. The big story, though, is that Steve Kerr, the head coach, is starting to take um, some criticism for it. You know, it was one thing to win the three championships, get to the finals five years in a row when everyone's healthy and you're firing at all cylinders. But now um, with kind of a, a shaky roster, uh, there's not a lot happening with, with the Warriors. Shep, why don't we go to you first? Is 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 Kerr facing some unfair criticism or is he maybe not doing a, as great of a job? I think the game, this you know, sports on a whole is very unforgiving. So it's it's one of those situations where it's, you know, what have you done for me lately? Um, and injuries can be, you know, an excuse up to a certain point. But at the end of the day, you're coaching up NBA level talent. The problem is there's there's, there's games that they should have pulled out. There's wins that they should have gotten, you know, to lesser teams. And I think that's where you start to question, okay, what's what's really going on here? Um, at the end of the day, they, they're missing some key pieces to their team. And I think, you know, you can't put that much pressure on him yet. But yeah, the territory comes with, you know, the responsibility of being a head coach. When things start, aren't going well, the fingers are going to start being pointed at first um, and then the player second uh, as the investment. So, uh, it's tough, and they do. And at the end of the day, you have a guy like Curry on your roster that is, you know, one of the top, the top five guards in the NBA or top five players in the NBA. So, regardless, uh, when you have a player of that of that nature, there's to be expectations of you. Andy, what uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the position Steve Kerr is finding himself in right now? I mean, I think it's it's an overreaction. I don't I don't think they took advantage of the free agency market like they should have. I also think they're getting unnecessary flack, especially Steve Kerr. I mean, they went to what five straight finals, and, and they're having two down years without one of their main players, a couple of their main players. And Kevin Durant, as as we know, as we, he's proved to us, is, is not an easy individual to work with. So really, no surprise that that didn't work out in Golden State. Who knows whose fault that was. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got a guy like Kendrick Perkins calling out Steve Kerr, which I have a huge problem with because let's say you took Kevin Durant and, and, and uh, uh, Russell Westbrook off your team. Now, I don't see any highlights of Perk, you know, playing with Perry Jones and his canter, Jeremy Lamb, Steve Novak. So, like, he didn't call out Scott Brooks after that. So he's not calling out Scott Brooks right now in, in Washington for having one of the worst records with Russell Westbrook and, and, and Bradley Beal. So that's my problem with him. He's an elite coach. He's proved that time and, and year in and year out. You know, with Steph, with Clay, with Draymond at full health, they're back to the finals. They have the alchemy. They figured it out. They'll be fine once they have a healthy squad. Amy, these guys are making pretty compelling arguments here. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, listen, we all know in this world of social media and the way that, you know, we have to pick and choose which voices we, we want to listen to, right? And, and I think Steve Kerr knows, he knows that as well. Um, I would say five finals appearances, the expectation of that organization is, you know, like when we look at Toronto, we had, we won a ring, we had a, <laughs> we had a good year last year, but then not a great bubble. And it's like, we're flipping out up here. So can you imagine five? So I, you guys know this. The head coach is always the first one to take, you know, take the blame. Uh, but if you know the game, <laughs> like like the like these two fine gentlemen said, um, they're gonna be okay. But yeah, you can't you you can't win in this league when your top three players are not playing the games, right? Like you just can't. So all right, keep moving forward. And what else can you say? Like they'll be fine. Like we're all we know basketball. Yeah, like we're we're like they're fine. Like I'd say that honestly, like if I'm them, like my priority is continuing to develop James Wiseman because he's been pretty up and down, but I think he has the potential to be huge for them. And so I'm up like putting all my attention into that right now because when those guys do come back healthy, if Wiseman's hitting his stride, like look 
out. I was going to say a bad word, but I didn't. Well, I, yeah, with, with Golden State, I'm also making sure Clay Thompson's going to be good to go for next season. And maybe at some point you have to, again, look at shutting down Steph and Draymond for this year. I mean, what what's the point of them getting to an eighth spot or the play-in game? They're not going to win the championship this year. They can come back next year so loaded with talent, maybe even squeak into the lottery again and, and get get a player there. Um, well, we had so many more NBA topics to get to, but we should wrap it up. Uh, thanks for listening to Jim Rats and Joints. Don't forget to rate and review us on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're on social media at Jim Rats Podcast. Thank you to our amazing producer, Dan Wong. Follow him on social at Dan Wong Says. Also check out his incredible soccer podcast, Footy Prime. Thank you so much to Amy Otterberg for joining us. You can follow her on social at Amy Otterberg, verified on Instagram. You can follow Javon Shepard on social at Javon Shepard. He's also verified on IG. I, I don't know what I, what I don't know what I have to do to get this. Andy Routens is on Instagram at Andy Routens. I'm Dan Gladman. You can find me on social at DG on the road. We thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you later. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.